Chapter 4.2 of the 9-11 Commission Report This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mary Rohde The 9-11 Commission Report Chapter 4.2 Crisis, August 1998 on August 7, 1998, National Security Advisor Berger woke President Clinton with a phone call at 5.35 a.m. to tell him of the almost simultaneous bombings of the U.S. embassies in Nairobi, Kenya, and Dar es Salaam, Tanzania. Suspicion quickly focused on bin Laden. Unusually good intelligence, chiefly from the year-long monitoring of al-Qaeda's cell in Nairobi, soon firmly fixed responsibility on him and his associates. Debate about what to do settled very soon on one option, Tomahawk cruise missiles. Months earlier, after cancellation of the covert capture operation, Clark had prodded the Pentagon to explore possibilities for military action. On June 2, General Hugh Shelton, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, had directed General Zinni at Central Command to develop a plan which he had submitted during the first week of July. Zinni's planners surely considered the two previous times the United States had used force to respond to terrorism, the 1986 strike on Libya and the 1993 strike against Iraq. They proposed firing tomahawks against eight terrorist camps in Afghanistan, including bin Laden's compound at Tarnak Farms. After the embassy attacks, the Pentagon offered this plan to the White House. The day after the embassy bombings, Tenet brought to a principal's meeting intelligence that terrorist leaders were expected to gather at a camp near coast Afghanistan to plan future attacks. According to Berger, Tenet said that several hundred would attend, including bin Laden. The CIA described the area as effectively a military cantonment, away from civilian population centers, and overwhelmingly populated by jihadists. Clark remembered sitting next to Tenet in a White House meeting, asking Tenet, You thinking what I'm thinking? And his nodding, Yes. The principals quickly reached a consensus on attacking the gathering. The strike's purpose was to kill bin Laden and his chief lieutenants. Berger put in place a tightly compartmented process designed to keep all planning secret. On August 11, General Zinni received orders to prepare detailed plans for strikes against the sites in Afghanistan. The Pentagon briefed President Clinton about these plans on August 12 and 14. Though the principals hoped that the missiles would hit bin Laden, NSC staff recommended the strike whether or not there was firm evidence that the commanders were at the facilities. Considerable debate went to the question of whether to strike targets outside of Afghanistan, including two facilities in Sudan. One was a tannery believed to belong to bin Laden. The other was Al-Shifa, a Khartoum pharmaceutical plant, which intelligence reports said was manufacturing a precursor ingredient for nerve gas with bin Laden's financial support. The argument for hitting the tannery was that it could hurt bin Laden financially. 
the argument for hitting al-shifa was that it would lessen the chance of bin laden's having nerve gas for a later attack ever since march nineteen ninety five american officials had had in the backs of their minds aum shinrikyo's release of sarin nerve gas in the tokyo subway president clinton himself had expressed great concern about chemical and biological terrorism in the united states bin laden had reportedly been heard to speak of wanting a hiroshima and at least ten thousand casualties the CIA reported that a soil sample from the vicinity of the Al-Shifa plant had tested positive for EMPTA, a precursor chemical for VX, a nerve gas whose lone use was for mass killing. Two days before the embassy bombings, Clark's staff wrote that bin Laden had invested in and almost certainly has access to VX produced at a plant in Sudan. Senior State Department officials believed that they had received a similar verdict independently, though they and Clark's staff were probably relying on the same report. Mary McCarthy, the NSC senior director responsible for intelligence programs, initially cautioned Berger that the bottom line was that we will need much better intelligence on this facility before we seriously consider any options. She added that the link between bin Laden and al-Shifa was rather uncertain at this point. Berger has told us that he thought about what might happen if the decision went against hitting al-Shifa and nerve gas was used in a New York subway two weeks later. By the early hours of the morning of August 20, President Clinton and all his principal advisers had agreed to strike bin Laden camps in Afghanistan near coast as well as hitting al-Shifa. The president took the Sudanese tannery off the target list because he saw little point in killing uninvolved people without doing significant harm to bin Laden. The principal, with the most qualms regarding al-Shifa, was Attorney General Reno. She expressed concern about attacking two Muslim countries at the same time. Looking back, she said that she felt the premise kept shifting. Later, on August 20, Navy vessels in the Arabian Sea fired their cruise missiles. Though most of them hit their intended targets, neither bin Laden nor any terrorist leader was killed. Berger told us that an after-action review by Director Tenet concluded that the strikes had killed 20 to 30 people in the camps, but probably missed bin Laden by a few hours. Since the missiles headed for Afghanistan had had to cross Pakistan, the vice chairman of Joint Chiefs was sent to meet with Pakistan's army chief of staff to ensure him the missiles were not coming from India. Officials in Washington speculated that one or another Pakistani official might have sent a warning to the Taliban or bin Laden. The airstrikes marked the climax of an intense 48-hour period in which Berger notified congressional leaders, the principals called their foreign counterparts, and President Clinton flew back from his vacation on Martha's Vineyard to address the nation from the Oval Office. The president spoke to the congressional leadership from Air Force One, and he called British Prime Minister Tony Blair, Pakistani Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif, and Egyptian President Hosni Mubarak from the White House. 
House Speaker Newt Gingrich and Senate Majority Leader Trent Lott initially supported the President. The next month, Gingrich's office dismissed the cruise missile attacks as pinpricks. At the time, President Clinton was embroiled in the Lewinsky scandal, which continued to consume public attention for the rest of that year and the first months of 1999. As it happened, a popular 1997 movie, Wag the Dog, features a president who fakes a war to distract public attention from a domestic scandal. Some Republicans in Congress raised questions about the timing of the strikes. Berger was particularly rankled by an editorial in The Economist that said that only the future would tell whether the U.S. missile strikes had created 10,000 new fanatics where there would have been none. Much public commentary turned immediately to scalding criticism that the action was too aggressive. The Sudanese denied that al-Shifa produced nerve gas, and they allowed journalists to visit what was left of a seemingly harmless facility. President Clinton, Vice President Gore, Berger, Tennant, and Clark insisted to us that their judgment was right, pointing to the soil sample evidence. No independent evidence has emerged to corroborate the CIA's assessment. Everyone involved in the decision had, of course, been aware of President Clinton's problems. He told them to ignore them. Berger recalled the president saying to him that they were going to get crap either way so they should do the right thing. All his aides testified to us that they based their advice solely on national security considerations. We have found no reason to question their statements. The failure of the strikes, the wag-the-dog slur, the intense partisanship of the period, and the nature of the al-Shifa evidence likely had a cumulative effect on future decisions about the use of force against bin Laden. Berger told us that he did not feel any sense of constraint. The period after the August 1998 embassy bombings was critical in shaping U.S. policy toward bin Laden. Although more Americans had been killed in the 1996 Kobar Towers attack, and many more in Beirut in 1983, the overall loss of life rivaled the worst attacks in memory. More ominous, perhaps, was the demonstration of an operational capability to coordinate two nearly simultaneous attacks on U.S. embassies in different countries. Despite the availability of information that al-Qaeda was a global network, in 1998 policymakers knew little about the organization. The reams of new information that the CIA's bin Laden unit had been developing since 1996 had not been pulled together and synthesized for the rest of the government. Indeed, analysts in the unit felt that they were viewed as alarmists even within the CIA. A national intelligence estimate on terrorism in 1997 had only briefly mentioned bin Laden, and no subsequent national estimate would authoritatively evaluate the terrorism danger until after 9-11. Policymakers knew there was a dangerous individual, Osama bin Laden, whom they had been trying to capture and bring to trial. Documents at the time referred to bin Laden and his associates, or bin Laden and his network. 
they did not emphasize the existence of a structured worldwide organization gearing up to train thousands of potential terrorists in the critical days and weeks after the august nineteen ninety eight attacks senior policymakers in the clinton administration had to reevaluate the threat posed by bin laden was this just a new and especially venomous version of the ordinary terrorist threat america had lived with for decades or was it radically new posing a danger beyond any yet experienced even after the embassy attacks bin laden had been responsible for the deaths of fewer than fifty americans most of them overseas an NSC staffer working for Richard Clark told us the threat was seen as one that could cause hundreds of casualties, not thousands. Even officials who acknowledge a vital threat intellectually may not be ready to act on such beliefs at great cost or at high risk. Therefore, the government experts who believed that bin Laden and his network posed such a novel danger needed a way to win broad support for their views, or at least spotlight the areas of dispute. The presidential daily brief and the similar, more widely circulated daily reports for high officials, consisting mainly of brief reports of intelligence news without much analysis or context, did not provide such a vehicle. The national intelligence estimate has often played this role, and is sometimes controversial for this very reason. It played no role in judging the threat posed by al-Qaeda, either in 1998 or later. In the late summer and fall of 1998, the U.S. government also was worrying about the deployment of military power in two other ongoing conflicts. After years of war in the Balkans, the United States had finally committed itself to significant military intervention in 1995-1996. Already maintaining a NATO-led peacekeeping force in Bosnia, U.S. officials were beginning to consider major combat operations against Serbia to protect Muslim civilians in Kosovo from ethnic cleansing. Airstrikes were threatened in October 1998. A full-scale NATO bombing campaign against Serbia was launched in March 1999. In addition, the Clinton administration was facing the possibility of major combat operations against Iraq. Since 1996, the UN inspections regime had been increasingly obstructed by Saddam Hussein. The United States was threatening to attack unless unfettered inspections could resume. The Clinton administration eventually launched a large-scale set of airstrikes against Iraq, Operation Desert Fox, in December 1998. These military commitments became the context in which the Clinton administration had to consider opening another front of military engagement against a new terrorist threat based in Afghanistan. A follow-on campaign Clark hoped the August 1998 missile strikes would mark the beginning of a sustained campaign against bin Laden. Clark was, as he later admitted, obsessed with bin Laden, and the embassy bombings gave him new scope for pursuing his obsession. Terrorism had moved high up among the president's concerns, and Clark's position had elevated accordingly. 
the CSG, unlike most standing interagency committees, did not have to report through the Deputies Committee. Although such a reporting relationship had been prescribed in the May 1998 Presidential Directive, after expressions of concern by Attorney General Reno, among others, that directive contained an exception that permitted the CSG to report directly to the principals if Berger so elected. In practice, the CSG often reported not even to the full principals committee, but instead to the so-called small group formed by Berger, consisting only of those principals cleared to know about the most sensitive issues connected with counterterrorism activities concerning bin Laden or the Kobar Towers investigation. For this inner cabinet, Clark drew up what he called Political Military Plan Delenda, the Latin delenda, meaning that something must be destroyed, evoked the famous Roman vow to destroy its rival, Carthage. The overall goal of Clark's paper was to immediately eliminate any significant threat to Americans from the Bin Laden network. The paper called for diplomacy to deny Bin Laden sanctuary, covert action to disrupt terrorist activities, but above all to capture bin Laden and his deputies and bring them to trial, efforts to dry up bin Laden's money supply, and preparation for follow-on military action. The status of the document was and remained uncertain. It was never formally adopted by the principals, and participants in the small group now have little or no recollection of it. It did, however, guide Clark's efforts. The military component of Clark's plan was its most fully articulated element. He envisioned an ongoing campaign of strikes against bin Laden's bases in Afghanistan or elsewhere, whenever target information was ripe. Acknowledging that individual targets might not have much value, he cautioned Berger not to expect ever again to have an assembly of terrorist leaders in his sights but he argued that rolling attacks might persuade the Taliban to hand over bin Laden, and in any case would show that the action in August was not a one-off event. It would show that the United States was committed to a relentless effort to take down bin Laden's network. Members of the small group found themselves unpersuaded of the merits of rolling attacks. Defense Secretary William Cohen told us, Bin Laden's training camps were primitive, built with rope ladders. General Shelton called them jungle gym camps. Neither thought them worthwhile targets for very expensive missiles. President Clinton and Berger also worried about the economist's point that attacks that missed Bin Laden could enhance his stature and win him new recruits. After the United States launched air attacks against Iraq at the end of 1998 and against Serbia in 1999, in each case provoking worldwide criticism, Deputy National Security Advisor James Steinberg added the argument that attacks in Afghanistan offered little benefit, lots of blowback against a bomb-happy U.S. During the last week of August 1998, Officials began considering possible follow-on strikes. 
According to Clark, President Clinton was inclined to launch further strikes sooner rather than later. On August 27, Under Secretary of Defense for Policy Walter Slocum advised Secretary Cohen that the available targets were not promising. The experience of the previous week, he wrote, has only confirmed the importance of defining a clearly articulated rationale for military action that was effective as well as justified. But Slocum worried that simply striking some of these available targets did not add up to an effective strategy. Defense officials at a lower level, in the office of the Assistant Secretary for Special Operations and Low-Intensity Conflict, tried to meet Slocum's objections. They developed a plan that, unlike Clark's, called not for particular strikes, but instead for a broad change in national strategy and in the institutional approach of the Department of Defense, implying a possible need for large-scale operations across the whole spectrum of U.S. military capabilities. It urged the Department to become a lead agency in driving a national counterterrorism strategy forward, to champion a national effort to take up the gauntlet that international terrorists have thrown at our feet. The authors expressed concern that we have not fundamentally altered our philosophy or our approach, even though the terrorist threat had grown. They outlined an eight-part strategy to be more proactive and aggressive. The future, they warned, might bring horrific attacks, in which case we will have no choice, nor, unfortunately, will we have a plan. The Assistant Secretary Alan Holmes took the paper to Slocum's chief deputy, Jan Lodahl, but it went no further. Its lead author recalls being told by Holmes that Lodahl thought it was too aggressive. Holmes cannot recall what was said, and Lodahl cannot remember the episode or the paper at all. End of chapter 4.2